Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. I'm Patrick Egan here with Colby Atchison and Jason Barney, and we're really excited to be talking about Bloom's Taxonomy today. We'll cover a lot of ground relative to what Bloom's is talking about in his taxonomy, what's great about it, where does it leave us short, but also how can we make the best use of it in the classical classroom today? So Jason, let me start with you. You've written a lot about Bloom's taxonomy. Give us a broad overview. What is he talking about? Um, what is the background behind Bloom's taxonomy? Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, Bloom's taxonomy is real interesting. I think it's um, something that many educators have heard of, or even if they haven't heard of, they've been influenced by it today. We all talk about learning standards and learning objectives, and this has just become an accepted norm of modern education. It's kind of become part of the architecture of the modern school that we would have particular educational objectives. And so Bloom's Taxonomy is a sort of hierarchy of educational goals. What are we actually going for here in education? It was um, made by Benjamin Bloom, hence it's called Bloom's. He was the main editor, but then there were a series of other um, university examiners, um, directors and chiefs at particular universities in America in the 1950s that worked together with him on the kind of original taxonomy of educational objectives. They came out in the 50s, the 1950s, with their classification of educational goals in the cognitive domain. That was their first handbook. And they had the idea to create an affective domain. So what, what we would want students to feel or value and a psychomotor domain, what we would want them to be able to do in their bodies. So we've got sort of the head, heart, and hands approach to human beings. Of course, there are some challenges with blooms. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think Patrick, you were probably at the, the school we were at together at the beginning of our kind of teaching career in classical education, when we were handed this kind of list of particular verbs in English that were Bloom's taxonomy goals. And the idea was we should ask questions to get high order thinking going. This is kind of the, the spirit of Bloom's that there's low level things that we might be inclined to have students do at the level of simple knowledge, but then there's higher order things like application, analysis, synthesis, and evaluation that you also wanna get students to do in terms of their thinking. Yeah, there's a clear structure to it and ordering of the way in which learners can be applying their minds to, to different things. And, and obviously, they were also thinking 
about that affective domain, how should we feel, um, and those different motor skills as well. To that end, it, it does bleed into certain pedagogical practices. For instance, articulating course objectives in alignment with different levels of that taxonomy. So you might say one objective for this class is to remember certain facts versus maybe an application. How do you use this information? And so you can articulate different objectives based on those different cognitive domains. We want to think through uh, that broad overview, what's great about Bloom's? What does it provide for us that we might be missing if we didn't have Bloom's in front of us? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a real gain to having clear objectives, especially for teachers. And if we think of the postmodern world in general, where we don't always as teachers no other than some ideological goal that um, has become common over the last 20, 30 years. You know, you, you need to make sure to get in technology or use of some video because we want to make sure that students are learning to use these things. That the students would actually be developed in some objective and clear way by the end of your class period, your course, a month, what are you actually trying to do in education? I think there is a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings about learning experiences, but without any clear objective that's measurable, that can become a, um, <laughs> a scary hole to go down. I mean, I think of Alice in Wonderland and uh, in the series of articles that I use, one of my uh, openings is to cite Alice talking with the Cheshire cat where where she would be going and and the Cheshire cat you know asks her very much it, it very much depends on where you want to go you know which way she should go right and so that's the the kind of if you're in Wonderland and you don't know where you're going in this educational uh, course or whatever it might be you're very unlikely to get there I mean, you're going to get somewhere if you just wander long enough, but we need to know where we're going in education. And I think it is in a way unpardonable for us as teachers to claim to be teaching something, but not to know what we're actually teaching, what we actually want the students to be able to think or do or understand or feel by the end of this particular course. It's so easy to just pick up the curriculum that's published and go through the motions, but I don't think that does um, justice to the service that we're rendering the students who are in our care. That's really interesting and helpful to hear you sketch it out, this idea of objectives. And it's, it is um, just ubiquitous in our modern world to think about what we're doing in terms of goals or even smart goals that are measurable and clear and observable. And uh, to apply that to education seems in some ways really natural. Uh, obviously some of my Charlotte Mason uh, sensitivities and, and alarms are going off right now, alarm bells as I think about, well, the personhood of a child and uh, 
an idea of um, an ideas rich education. And so I, I'm tempted to jump into a critique already, but uh, I know we're trying to focus here on the good of Bloom and I can definitely um, see and agree with the value of having clear objectives when coming into the classroom. Yeah, and I, I think I think it's worth pausing there and really appreciating the value of the task of getting clear objectives and teachers holding themselves accountable for results in some sense. I do think that as classical educators, as Charlotte Mason educators, we can be inclined to simply dismiss something like Bloom's taxonomy to have a real negative view of uh, this sort of approach where we're coming up with standards and learning objectives and all of that. And instead, we just want to be about the ideas. But the fact of the matter is that we are accountable in some sense. We should view ourselves as teachers, as accountable for whether the students actually learned. It's even in the seven laws of teaching by John Milton Gregory that we have the claim that, you know, if you're the teacher, you haven't really taught something if the students haven't learned it. And we could dismiss that and uh, simply claim that it's up to them to learn it and quote, you know, proverbs like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I think a lot of teachers do that in their minds and just dismiss those students who aren't learning in spite of them teaching. And I think that that lets us off the hook too much. I think we really need to take responsibility for as much as possible every student in our care and that we are actually developing them. We are helping them along their journey and their path. And in a way, this is, I, I guess I hesitate to use the term student-centered education as opposed to teacher-centered um, in the sense that you know, the, the schools were not made for teachers. We shouldn't just keep teachers who aren't teaching students um, on our staff and they, because they get a paycheck and they after all need, need to do something with their lives. Like we should have a sense that we are responsible. We have a, a calling to educate children. And that has, you know, that has some standards to it. We have to actually do something that we can see with it and, and not just have fuzzy learning experiences. We're accountable for the time that we're giving. I think um, you've initiated a few ideas that are worth uh, summarizing and, and diving into maybe a little bit more. One is, you're right, the student-centered approach to education uh, give students all kinds of autonomy and self-direction. And in many respects, that's not what we're talking about. I like to think of it as what is the source of energy in the classroom? And when you compare something like lecture-based education, where all of the energy is provided by the teacher, and if there's no mechanism in that environment to test whether students are acquiring the knowledge, able to use it, then all of that energy is misspent uh, versus a classroom where all of the energy provided in the learning is done by the students, where they are actually engaging in things like narration and discussion or problem solving. There's a different approach there that we wouldn't necessarily call student centered because there's still a teacher 
guiding that energy towards a certain end. And that's where I think the other point that you bring up uh, comes into play. There's this quote by Peter Drucker, who's a, a business leader who talks about, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And we might apply that to student growth in uh, an area of knowledge where we would say, well, can you actually measure what it would look like for this student to grow or improve in a skill or a knowledge set? And if you can actually measure it, well, they should be able to do this thing in this way. Um, yet there's so much that is difficult to measure. And so I guess that's my question is uh, finding things that are measurable can sometimes reduce education to that which is mechanical or technique-based as opposed to values-driven. So how do you measure whether this student is learning how to live a good life? How do you measure whether this student is kind to others? And so that may start to get us into a bit of a critique of what, what we're talking about, but I wanted to put those two ideas out there just in terms of the source of energy in the classroom and uh, the role of measurement that we might have as we evaluate learning in the classroom. What do you guys think about those? Well, I would just um, engage with what Colby said earlier about children as persons mm -hmm. and connect in this idea to say that I think one of the aspects of persons that is good is the fact that we like targets. We like aiming for things and meeting goals. Our brains are hardwired with a dopaminergic system to give us motivation to meet our goals, to, you know, once we've set a particular goal. So I think part of the, the question here is first, teachers having goals or objectives is good because it engages them fully as persons in their craft. And so teachers seeing what they do is craft. I know Colby, you've talked a lot about the craft of teaching and engaged with teach like a champion and uh, classical sources on that. But I think that's important that we wanna engage teachers in their craft. And so to throw up our hands and say, cause we can't measure everything, therefore we shouldn't measure anything would be going too far to one extreme. But then also students themselves should have um, goals for their own learning. They should be engaged and have some sense of where they're going and what the objectives are. And if they don't, they probably won't be motivated as well as they could be. Now, should those goals be grade based? Maybe not, right? There are ways that we could manipulate the motivations of our students in ways that would not be, you know, honoring them fully as persons. We want intrinsic motivation, but I think there is a place for measurement of some things. And like you said, Peter Drucker's got some great wisdom there. In the series, I actually engage with the quote from Galileo to um, measure what can be measured and make measurable what is not so, which is really interesting. And I think it's, it's part of the whole um, social science uh, push of the mid 20th century that led Bloom and his colleagues to want to measure everything they could in education. And the real rise of standardized testing is occurring during this time and can be attributed in some ways to the taxonomy of educational objectives. 
that was part of their goal was to create a clear and uh, standardized language for teachers and curriculum writers and examiners on what exactly we were going for in education. They started with their, their cognitive domain. They did an affective domain about a decade later. They never got to their psychomotor domain. Um, and I think the fact that they didn't do all three of them fully from the beginning may have had some negative effects in terms of overemphasizing the mind to the, the neglect of the heart and the body in modern education. I think that's a problem that we still deal with. But, um, but yeah, I do think measurability is tricky because you can't measure everything. Um, in fact, some of the most important things, Patrick, like you said, you can't necessarily measure very easily. The way that Bloom and his colleagues went about their whole project ended up neglecting, I think, a number of things in education that were not easily measurable and therefore kind of weighting the whole project in an unhelpful direction. So I do want to go there, but I, I, I hesitate because I, I do want to give this full weight to the positive, the blessings of Blooms, of actually having those objectives and, um, and thinking in terms of real and measurable goals for growth. Having a growth focus is so important for teachers and students. And so we would, would be remiss if we just uh, neglected that aspect of it. Absolutely. What, uh, what I'd love to hear before we really get into the best way to glean from this is uh, my sense is people who are part of our educational renewal movement, particularly in the classical Christian school movement, might think of Blooms as part of that conventional progressive educational movement that we're reacting to. And so might be inclined to think, well, Blooms is part of that other educational model. And we're actually trying to recover things that were lost in that transition through educational reform in a more progressivist model. And so I think it is worth critiquing what might be assumed in Bloom's taxonomy. I'd love to get both of your thoughts on ways in which it may be open to critique. And, uh, and then we can come back and see, well, how can we in this educational renewal movement glean what is best from this yeah, definitely. I, um, now we can move to the critique a little bit, which I've been looking forward to. You know? <laughs> um, I, first of all, I was intrigued um, that uh, they did intend early on to have an effective taxonomy, an affective taxonomy, one focused on, on values and uh, training students in terms of what they should value or even desire, what matters, what's good, I suppose and that they ultimately neglected that project or, or didn't continue it on, or at least it didn't take, it didn't um, become what we know of as Bloom's taxonomy today. And uh, 
and as classical educators, obviously, that effective desire is, is so crucial to what we are trying to do here at, at our schools. You know, we're trying to train students in the affections. And I think about Lewis's quote, uh, his idea from the abolition of man, which you reference about men without chess and this idea of living in a, a valueless world is is ridiculous. Like uh, there is goodness, truth and beauty out there. And part of the task of the educator is to put that goodness, truth, and beauty before them and to help students learn to love uh, what is good, true, and beautiful, to be trained morally. Um, another way Lewis puts it is that real education is an education in, in humanity, in training students to be better humans, which uh, to modern listeners can be can sound offensive. What do you mean I'm not a, a full human or a, or a true human, you know? And, uh, you read enough Lewis and you realize, wow, like that, that beastly appetite is always lurking in the background of human nature. And uh, without proper education, it's so easy for our, our bodily passions and appetites to take over our character, our souls and our minds. And so we need to equip students, not only in the cognitive, which is what Bloom's focusing on in his taxonomy, but in the affective as well. And I think it's a real problem that they went for this supposed neutrality in their approach, where they just tried to take the language of teachers, standardize it, and not land in any educational philosophy. They wanted it to be able to be used by people from all sorts of different persuasions, and in a way they were therefore successful in getting their taxonomy to be um, adopted widely. But to, to pretend that you could be neutral with regard to human values, with regard to what's good or bad and what should be done, I think is, a, is endemic to the modernism and the you know, false objectivity of that era that, that didn't want to accept the fact that we all stand on a particular place, a particular set of values with a particular vantage point, with a worldview, and you can't get out of your worldview and look at the landscape of education from this neutral vantage point, godlike view of things where you can just pronounce objectively on on the definitions of things and i think that's one of the major problems because they did that in a way they justified a whole generation of teachers in leaving habit training for instance aside and engaging in actually behavior modification instead um, because they didn't have a sense of human values of virtues of real goals for how they wanted students to think and behave and what it looked like to be proper to greet people nicely like there are a host of different little details that would have normally been considered part of the teacher's duty that have been neglected because of this supposed neutrality and um and so yeah i just want to commend for instance if you're listening um, and you haven't checked out Patrick's um, ebook on habit training, 
what a great resource to engage with Charlotte Mason, step back before blooms and think for a little bit as Christians, what does it look like to raise children um, and to help them grow, respecting them as persons, but to help them grow into all sorts of virtues. The character formation is central to the work of education. In a way, it's even more important than the cultivation of their minds. We want them to be, um, you know, human beings who relate well with others in the world. We are finally waking up to this and talking about EQ and not just IQ, that how people relate emotionally to other people, which are habituated, learned ways of being in the world with others, is more important for their long-term success and ability to do a host of different jobs and navigate their personal and family relationships, engage in church and leadership in the community. We know this now. EQ is incredibly more important and perhaps we might say predictive of success, even if we might look down on worldly metrics of success as not ultimately being the most important thing as Christians. Still, emotional intelligence, how students are trained and developed in their habits, their affections, as it were, what they love and care about. These are all incredibly important things. And um, I think the tradition would argue, Lewis, Plato, Aristotle would argue are the of central concern for early education, especially we might say K through 12, uh, pre K through eight, whatever, however we look at it, these things are perhaps the most important. And at one point in the series, I say Lewis might have looked at C.S. Lewis might have looked at Bloom's taxonomy, which was written shortly after his abolition of man and said, you should have done the affective domain only and left it at that. And that would have been better for us all than just focusing on the cognitive domain and the mind. Well, we've evaluated Bloom's taxonomy from a few different directions. I, I suppose an evaluation places us higher in the taxonomy. So that's, that's good, good for us. We're doing a great job working within that taxonomy. Well, I, I have some questions for Jason though, yeah. Patrick. Do we really have to move on? Come on. <laughs> well, we, we want to make the most of our time here, especially as we think about making the best use of Bloom's taxonomy in the classical classroom. Um, as we, as a renewal, educational renewal movement, want to make the most of this, what are some practical ways that we can implement what he's on about in effective ways, which may mean understanding its limitations, obviously, but also some of the potential that's there to make best use of this. What would you advise? Yeah, that's a great question. I think anytime you work with standards or clear objectives as a teacher, you are implicitly making use of Bloom's taxonomy. I would say that um, writing curriculum guides and thinking about unit plans and writing thoughtful lesson plans should have as part of it an element of objectives. What are you expecting students to actually be able to do or think or feel by the end of the training? Because if you have those clear objectives in mind, 
you will be able to then judge whether or not the course that you took them through, uh, again, whether it's a day, a week, a month, or a whole year was successful in attaining those ends. I think a bad way to use uh, Bloom's taxonomy is to just use it strictly and, you know, hold yourself to the six orders. It has to be either knowledge or comprehension, application, analysis, synthesis, or evaluation that they're engaging in. I think that they leave a lot of things out with those six cognitive domain kind of higher order goals that have kind of subcategories underneath uh, each one of them. And so you shouldn't confine yourselves to those goals. I think you should think of things that might seem harder to measure or might not be goals of the average school or class. I'll give a personal example here. At the beginning of this year, one of the classes I currently teach just did not seem to me to have a really great sense of humor. And I felt like this was this was a real failing. This is a group of um, middle school age students. They did not seem to get the puns that I would express or the jokes quite as well. And so I just thought that witty banter would be a real learning objective. And I proclaimed this at a particular point that these students really need to learn to have a great sense of humor, to be able to joke and laugh and discuss with one another ideas and make puns and references to earlier things that we've learned. I have a whole developed pedagogy, by the way, for how this sort of thing could or should be done. And I think this is a real and legitimate goal. You won't find it in Bloom's taxonomy, uh, not the cognitive domain, definitely not the effective domain either, um, not in any of the other scholars' uh, psychomotor domains that have been proposed, but having a good sense of humor, being able to engage in some witty banter, I, I view it as a learning objective. And I feel like, you know, we're not even done with the school year yet, and we've already successfully met this objective. So you might think this would not be measurable, but because I have some affinity for witty banter and have been able to engage in it with people over the time, there's some level of mastery there. I feel like I can teach it. I can see it when it's there. Basically, every one of these students now has effectively learned how to have some playful conversation, and we're all the better for it. We're happier as a class. These kids are developing more maturity, I think. Anyways, I, I could go on. Hopefully you've had a little bit of a giggle with me. And I, I do say this partly tongue in cheek, but also completely seriously, that we should take as goals or objectives, not just things that Bloom might say, but, but legitimate things we could give students in terms of skills, life skills, skills for relating with others, and a set out to actually teach these things in various ways and different things get taught in different ways. I did not um, pick a particular curriculum to use to teach this group of about 10 students how to engage in witty banter. Um, I did it through an apprenticeship experience of modeling it and inviting them to imitate and engage in it together, providing practice as we discussed various texts and texts and learned logical fallacies and 
you know, talked about science ideas and brought them back up and, uh, and they do it now too. We all do it together. It's great fun. And, um, and we actually, you know, it, along the way are learning ideas that are in the curriculum that I'm teaching them as it turns out when we do this sort of discussion based engagement with things. So, um, so I would say that would be a great way to use Bloom's taxonomy is to not confine yourself to Bloom's orders, but to think in terms of what objectives should I have for these students. If you read your curriculum and are planning out units, what, what does the curriculum want these students to be able to do? How therefore should I teach it? such that they would be able to do that by the end of this. Because there's a lot of sloppy use of curriculum uh, out there by us as teachers. I just, <laughs> that sounds harsh, but I think it's true. We don't read the curriculum to see what the curriculum is actually trying to do. We have our own preconceived ideas of what objectives there might be, but we don't always attend to what the objectives are that the the curriculum has in mind. Now, there are times when uh, as wise teachers, we should throw the curriculum's objectives out the window and say, I don't think that that's actually what we should get these students doing by this point, but we're still gonna use the curriculum anyways. That's a longer discussion. But the point is that the main way that we use Bloom's taxonomy um, actively is by coming up with objectives, real goals for how we want students to grow. I'd like to offer uh, one additional takeaway potentially for uh, how we can use Bloom's well. You know, just thinking about how if one contribution of the modern era is uh, a, a focus and a honing in on how we as humans can use our reason well. You know, when I think about Bloom's taxonomy and the sort of work we're having students do, we can pair these objectives with work that is befitting of their personhood. It's not an either or scenario. I loved Patrick's uh, use of this idea, uh, where's the energy in the room coming from? And so sure, if you're pairing Bloom's taxonomy with meaningless worksheets or just busy work or fill in the blank kind of activities where it's really not asking much of students and it's not equipping them to do worthy work of learning, then yeah, it, it may be a problem. But if you can think through objectives that you want your students to learn and couple that with meaningful assignments, whether it's an extended discussion or a meaningful essay topic, uh, bringing in moments of narration and students doing the work of learning and increasing that ratio, like Doug Lamoff talks about in Teach Like a Champion, I think there's a real way to respect a child's personhood while also utilizing these objectives well. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think another way that if you have those objectives, you need to continually be assessing where students are on their journey to understanding. So I think even of the, the particular lesson plan, if you write lesson plans and have a space for objectives at the end, I think this applies best to skill-based lessons, to have an objective where I, I want them to be able to do this particular skill, then checking in at the end, having some sort of exit ticket where you can see, you get them to show you 
whether or not they've learned how to do the thing that you want them to be able to do at the end. Um, you know, we can think of math or of grammar, these kind of skill-based disciplinary sorts of um, subjects where you want to see that students are, are able to successfully complete this particular type of problem, say, in math. And, um, and where the kicker comes in is if you get to the end and the majority of your students are still having trouble successfully completing that sort of problem, it's time to, to look back at the beginning of the next day. They need more practice. You need to give that to them. You need to reteach. You need to explain again. You need to show again instead of just moving on and, as it were, blindly trusting the curriculum that it'll all come right. You need to be the active um, agent as the teacher, making sure that students learn and grow step by step along the way. I think that's another way that it you need to work into your teaching process opportunities for students to show you what they know or are able to do frequently. We sometimes talk about this um, in modern education as low stakes formative assessments where we are testing or in such a way that we can form or shape the ongoing process of learning for students. And that is so important and crucial because otherwise you can go through a whole lot of material, cover a lot of material that is only half-baked in students' minds and quickly goes out of their minds. And we don't really want that. We don't want to just cover material and students not come away knowing anything or knowing how to do anything. We want it to go into their long-term memory, to get into their bones so that they can actually take it with them for the rest of their lives. So there's a way to go about teaching that's, that's just haphazard and assumes that even if most of the students didn't get it, well, that's their fault and not mine as a teacher. And that's kind of what I was alluding to before. And so I think that just builds off what you were saying, Colby, that, you know, we have to, we have to check in with students on where they're, where they're at with particular skills or, or sets of knowledge. So... Yeah, and if you're an administrator listening in on this, you know, one of the challenges in terms of evaluating teachers that we have to constantly be thinking about is um, when it comes to objectives and whether students are meeting those learning objectives, what is the responsibility of the teacher and what is the responsibility of the student? Because there are two extremes there. And uh, like Jason's saying, you know, on the one hand, it's not all the students fault but it's not all the, the teachers fault either and so the best way as administrators that we can really uh, coach our teachers well is by getting in the classrooms and seeing the sort of lessons that are being led see if the teachers are implementing those formative assessments see if they are calling on students to be actively explaining concepts and contributing to the discussion and demonstrating their proficiency in those skills, um, getting lots of those reps in. And uh, by doing that, teachers can then take that data and apply it and recycle it into their future lessons. So it's all helpful in terms of evaluating teacher performance. Well, here at Educational Renaissance, we take seriously the craft of teaching. And hopefully, if you're a teacher or administrator, uh, our coverage here of Bloom's Taxonomy has added to your toolkit 
where you can think creatively about lesson plans. How can you think about categories like analysis or creativity to add to what you're doing in the classroom, to get the most out of the curriculum you're using, to enable your students to use their knowledge in such a way that uh, they are um, being really productive in all different domains of knowledge. And as administrators, as you're coaching your teachers, this Bloom's taxonomy can be a helpful way for you to add into their knowledge base, the, the teachers that are under your care. And uh, there's so much more that can be said. Uh, there are a lot of articles that Jason has written on Bloom's taxonomy. We haven't even uh, touched the tip of the iceberg here, uh, especially as we think about um, ways in which we can evaluate Bloom's from the vantage point of the classical tradition, uh, ways in which we could think about uh, cultivating virtue in our classrooms through the use of Aristotle. Yeah, I'll just hop in right there to encourage you, if you're intrigued by this, to engage further with this series as I develop it um, and compare with Aristotle's five intellectual virtues. Because I think Aristotle has a much richer and more holistic philosophy of the human person than what Bloom's taxonomy solidified. And so um, while we don't have time to delve into Aristotle here, we'll definitely be doing a future podcast or two on the topic of Aristotle's five intellectual virtues, which are uh, techne or artistry or craftsmanship. Um, phronesis is practical wisdom or prudence. I think both of those are in many ways neglected by Bloom's taxonomy. And then also uh, knowledge or scientific knowledge, uh, episteme, which is the ability to demonstrate something. So it's not what Bloom's would call knowledge, as well as intuition or perception, the Greek noose there, the ability to perceive either particulars or universals. So it's kind of the starting points from which you would have a train of reasoning. Do you, do you have an intuition? Do you actually perceive the right things about the world from which you would then reason? And it's the combination of those last two, the scientific knowledge and the intuition about the highest things that leads to philosophic wisdom or Sophia. And I think this paradigm, if we were to um, develop it in line with the liberal arts tradition and kind of think in detail about what it would look like in a modern Christian classical school, would helpfully replace Bloom's taxonomy and give a more holistic view of who we are as human persons and what it means to really achieve excellence in any of these areas intellectually. Of course, there's the moral virtues too, which are legitimate um, objectives or goals for education as well. So track with us, engage um, with this series on Aristotle as we try and uh, develop out some of these ideas and see where it takes us. I'm excited to continue to think through. We're Educational Renaissance. I'm Patrick Egan here with Jason Barney and Colby Atchison. We are promoting a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. Uh, we'd love if you like, subscribe, comment on our podcast. Uh, that is going to help us keep this educational renaissance spreading.